Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And here we are. You've got Mel with another incredible person. And today our guest is Professor Michael Spitzer from the University of Liverpool. And as you might guess, he's a professor of music. Uh, Where else but Liverpool? Uh, Michael, it's, it's wonderful to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, and, and you have a wonderful, and I, I mean wonderful, new book out called The Musical Human, uh, which is like, for me, it's, it's like Yuval Noah Harari on, on human beings, the whole other side. Like, he, he missed out on the musical man. So it's a good thing we have you. He should read your book. I mean, okay, but um, we start the show with a jingle, and I was wondering whether I should play the jingle because you're a professor of musicology, and then I said, okay, today we're going to let our hair down, you're not going to tell me how lousy it is, right, and uh, we're just going to have fun talking about the musical human. Is that fair enough? It's fair enough. Okay, well, you're a captive audience now. Here we go. Get a chair, grab a seat, or we'll sweep you off your feet. We move, we groove, you got mail. Ease your legs, rest a while, all you gotta do is smile. We're swell, can't you tell you got mail? When the show begins, you better hold on real tight. Or before you know it, you'll be high as a kite. Take a break, settle down, we're the only show in town. SRO, don't you know you got mail? Give it up, don't think twice, we're a hurricane on ice. What the hell, give a yell, ring your bell, show and tell. Mademoiselle, give a smell, you got Mel. You've got Mel. And Mel has to get rid of this. And now, Michael. So, thanks so much. Um, like, I, I've interviewed 130 people on the show, but I don't remember getting so excited because your book 
fills in so many missing things in my musical life. And worse than that, or better, I have a million zillion questions to ask you. We're, we're, there's no way we're going to finish today. We're going to have to do this another 20 times. Um, your book is all about the musical man. Um, it's hundreds of pages. It's documented. It's all referenced. What, what would you like to share with people who are not musicologists? What for you? By the way, in this interview, I just want your opinion. Right? Not what other people think, what Michael thinks. What is the musical man to you and why did you write this book? Um, I wrote the book because I can't imagine a world without, without music. And it's a burning desire to share my passion with people. And to, look, we tell an extraordinary story um, in universities and people are daunted or put off by how scary technical music can be. Um, I wanted to reach out over the uh, ivory tower, over the walls of universities and tell the story that we know. It's an extraordinary story um, and it uh, stretches for millions of years that, you know, mankind is only a footnote and music has been going on, well, uh, hundreds of millions of years, insects have music, whales have music, birds have music and um, I, I argue that music is the most important thing that sapiens ever learned to do and this word sapiens we, we know it of course from your compatriot in, in Israel um, Harari mm -hmm. and frankly I was really inspired when I first came across Harari sapiens a few years ago it's one of those moments where you think oh my god this is such an obvious thing to say this story of where we came from. As you said in your introduction, he doesn't talk at all about music and arguably music is the most important thing that we ever did and my book shows that. Uh, history is written by the victors and the victor of evolution is language. Uh, but music is actually older than language, that's a funny thing. It's uh, millions of years older than language and that blows my mind. So why is music a Cinderella? You know, it's, it's, it's always, people talk about it being, having no, no, no purpose, no value. What's the point of music? Well, I think we all know what the point of music is. It's, it's like the air we breathe, so pervasive that we take, uh, we take it for granted. It's, it's invisible, like the air, but we would die without it. So um, before, so one of the one of the um, things that, that that's problematic in your book is that insects have music and whales have music, but other primates don't. So that's that's a little that's a little mishigane, as we as we Jews would say. But before we go back to that, um, tell us something about your life. Start with you know baby Michael. It's a f funny story. Um, my parents were uh, immigrants to Palestine, Israel after the war. My mother was in a concentration camp. Um, both were Hungarian. They made it to Israel and went straight away into a kibbutz for a few years. A Hungarian communist kibbutz, apparently. Which kibbutz? I, I don't know. It's in Rehovot. Mm -hmm. 
And um, then my father went into the building trade. Nobody in my family was educated. I was the first person in my family to go to university and the first musician as well. I was born in Africa, in Nigeria, because my father got a job as he built water purification plants in Nigeria. I was born there. And then we straight away came back to Israel. Hebrew was my first language. I forgot every word of my native language. How about that? I'm now English, but I'm deceptively English. So we emigrated from um, Israel to England in the Yom Kippur War in 73, for political reasons, I think. Um, wow. Well, my father was a, a fairly left wing, and the country was not. <laughs> not, not anymore, anyway, not for the rise of Likud in the early 70s. Um, so I quickly embraced my adoptive culture and became English and went through a very typical um, standard um, English educational system. I was lucky enough to gain an open scholarship to Oxford and I never looked back. I wanted to stay within academia. And no, but you, you, you've missed out here 15 important years, Michael. Oh, yeah. This, this, interview, this interview is about you, you know, savor, savor the moment. What were you like as a kid and, and, and how did you come to music? Well, very late in the day, uh, I heard my father put on records, uh, Mahler, uh, Beethoven, and I, as a very young kid, I felt like there was um, holiness or... or, or gold pouring out of this it was a mystery i didn't know what it was but i knew i want i was drawn towards it but because we had no money i didn't have the chance to play anything until i was 13 um which was a piano that's very late in the day to what's that Wait, you didn't grow up in in uh, liverpool no 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 i missed out but if it's interest people i i we started off in the south of england um in, in a very undistinguished seaside town called Herne Bay, about 60 miles from London, where my father ran a junk shop or kind of borderline junk stroke antiques. And, um, you know, in a, in a Dickensian way, I didn't have a childhood. I helped my father carry furniture or sell secondhand books. He didn't give me any money. I didn't pay anything. So um, he was a worker. He was a, a communist anyway. <laughs> it was a working childhood. Exactly. Proletariat. <laughs> yes. And then, and then your first piano when you were 13? Yeah, my father came across a second-hand piano and I touched it. I liked what I... You know, and... Michael, one second, I have to stop you here. You know, you know, because the musical man, you know, father had his junk store, always second hand, everything from something to a baby grand, right? Yes. So, yes. You're, you're, so you're a second hand rose. Yes. Wonderful. So, you, you, so your father got a second hand piano when you were 13 and then what happened? I began to take lessons and did, did quite well. It quite well, you performed? Uh, amateur, amateur, never professional. I realized that um, I would never be quite good enough to be a professional, so I went sideways from being a performer to being a professor. 
And you studied musicology in the university? I went to Oxford. I did, I did a first degree in, in musicology and then a doctorate uh, concentrating on Beethoven. And like you're the, you're, you're the world expert on Beethoven. One of them, several. Well, for me, no. you're the, for me, you're the expert. Thank you very much, Mel. I'm going I'm to ask you a question about Beethoven and classical music in general. Yeah. Um, but before that, you ended up at the University of Liverpool. Not quite. Um, my first job, I taught for 20 years in a Durham University, which is near Scotland. Durham, it's like Oxford. It's a medieval university. And I was very happy. And I was there for 20 years and then um, was offered a, a full chair, a full professorship in Liverpool 10 years ago. So I moved on down there. Very happy uh, there. Yeah, and you're tenured now? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the UK. So, so well, it's a so different my, so, No, but so, Michael, you know, um, I was a professor for many years. And we're always afraid of the jazz police, you know, what the, the other people will say. But, you know, at the end of the day, who cares? I, I play my best music when nobody important is listening to me. <laughs> you know, the moment that you say the jazz police are here, you have to worry. At least so for today, we're not going to worry. Um, but, you know, you are at the University of Liverpool. Yeah. I, I want to come visit you for my 70th birthday. You're very welcome. And, and interview you and walk along the streets of the Beatles. Yeah. And to do like a rollover Beethoven. Yeah. Um, and so you're a professor uh, specializing in, among other things, Beethoven in the city of the Beatles. I, well, I don't specialize in Beethoven. I teach anything they want me to. Um, when I moved from Durham down here, I had to go native, and because the culture here, of course, is the majority of my students are popular music students, so I teach pop music. And when I teach a module on aesthetics, um, the majority of the kids, where they're coming from, is is pop music. So I, you know, I, I adapt. You teach a course in popular music. Yeah. So do I. Yeah. Good. I don't know if it's good. Um, you might not think it's good for a professor of microbiology to yeah. teach a course in popular music. I think it's good. Yeah. But but you know a lot more than I do. Liverpool, um, it's much more diverse or multicultural in its in its music. It's it's very healthy for me to to move. I mean to migrate actually from. Durham, which is very traditional, to this very modern and, and vi vibrant place, very conducive to free thinking. But I wouldn't have been able to write my book if I stayed in Oxford or, or Durham. It's quite liberating to come here. Yes, yeah. and your, your book is very well researched, uh, maybe like a little bit too well for my, for my taste as a university professor. Um, but it's it's all over the place in a good way. It's really eclectic. It's really universal. And that's you know, and and, and I I saw you giving that TEDx talk in India, and I said, wow, I have to get to know this guy. Amazing. So I guess the, the first question is why is music so important? 
if apes, monkeys, and other primates don't do it? Um, look, the, the story is, if you look at the, the, um, the big picture, birds have music and they can sing. They have a faculty called um, vocal learning, which means that they're not confined to the calls they're born with, but can create new, new songs. And very few species have vocal learning. Cetitians have it, which is dolphins and whales and seals, they have it. Um, apes don't. A apes, as a rule, can't create new melody. And this is very strange because we evolved along the ape line. And we can create, so where did it come from? So the, 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 um, the problem was this discontinuity between apes and, and, and birds. Apes are very good at gesture. They can create new gestures. They can't create new sounds. Somewhere along the line, apes or, or Australopithecines and, and hominins, which are our ancestors, they reconstructed this missing, this lost gift of creating music. And so the big picture is that music is always for, for sapiens, artificial and a bit fake. We're faking it. Birds, it comes naturally to birds. We have, we have to work hard to create the craft. And that isn't to say we aren't all born with a capacity to be musical. And one of my take-home messages is that we're all born with this capacity to be musicians. And in the West, the tragedy is that we're nearly all of us consumers, we're passive consumers. And we think that music is in the hands of, dare I say, musicians. There's this barrier between those who, who make the music or performers and those who listen to it, the audience. And nearly all of us don't participate in making music. I to compare that with the rest of the world outside the West. This isn't the case. There isn't this artificial distinction between uh, performers and composers and, and listeners. Everybody joins in at their own level. It's very um, accommodating to people of different levels. It's the, it's the jazz police all over again. It is. But let, let me tell you what I understood from your book. You, you can trash me as much as you like. You know, in, in Yuval Noah Harari's book, which is kind of like, you know, the, the, um, the yin to your yang, um, he also says, we don't know how people develop language, but that's what makes us people. Mm. And what I understood from your book is that language grew out of song, uh, out of music. Sure. Uh, that was Freudian, but it, it wasn't really. Because, you know, people ask me, why do I have good accents in many different languages that I can barely speak? And I answer it's because I'm a musician. I'm a musician. But then I read your book, and it, it, it kind of made sense. Because every language is a song. You know, if you listen to Portuguese, se você que Deus afina o amor, saiba que isto não provoca imensador. I mean, you can't write a notation, but you probably could. The languages, languages sing, don't they? Yeah. Well, we call that, or linguists call that aspect of language prosody. Prosody is yeah. the tempo, the rhythm, the contour, the melody of language. Language puts syntax and semantics front and center, not prosody. Whereas music puts contour and dynamics and tone 
first and syntax second. Um, it isn't quite what I say. I think when you go back millions of years, you can't distinguish language from music with the same thing, and they branch out. And one profiles prosody and one profiles syntax, and they branch out. But where music um, is more useful for us is because it's a full brain and body experience. That language, uh, much more than language, music accesses every part of the brain and body. The emotions yeah. and memory, um, physical movement. Um, uh, you can't dance the language, you know. And most importantly, music is um, social. It's all about doing it with other people. Um, so even when you're in your armchair and you think you're alone, you're not really because you're plugging yourself into a social network because every song is full of social cliches. But in the in origin, music was about um, singing and dancing together. And the function of music was to bind the pack together through what anthropologists call social or vocal grooming. Vocal grooming is that you're grooming the monkey, the ape, not with your hands, but with your voice. And you can literally broadcast your voice over the entire community, but you can't, of course, feel them all at the same time. So vocally, you can reach out much more. And uh, when you dance together, um, joined rhythm. Rhythm is an astonishing thing because if you all uh, move to the beat, it's worth coordinating life. You get routines, you get um, labor, you get hunting practices. And the, the concept of rhythm is so all-encompassing. All life is rhythm. The rhythm of what we're doing now, our conversation is rhythmic, we're turn-taking, we're nodding with each other. So what we call music gradually crystallizes out of rhythm, out of the rhythm of life, right? So yeah. rhythm is everywhere, but as a distinct practice, music gradually evolves out of this all-encompassing kind of rhythm. Absolutely. But, you know, I, um, when you write, I think that when you write a really good book, uh, people can misunderstand you and that's okay. So that's my, my reader response because you got me going in all kinds of ways. And now I'm looking at language as a subset of music, as a particular kind of music. Yeah. Um, and this has a lot of, like, for example, when I'm teaching my course in popular music, okay, um, I teach the students that most popular songs have words. Why do they have words? Why do popular songs need words? And I say, I'll give you an example of a popular song from the 50s that barely have has no understandable words, and none of you will know it. And I start singing The Witch Doctor, which is from about 1958 or something, you know. Ooh-wee, ooh-wah-ah, ding-dang, walla-walla-bing-bang. All my students know it. It's like from 65 years ago. Uh, and, 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 and we love music, popular music, that has words, even if the words are in French or Italian or Portuguese, and we don't know the words, but we, we need the words, we need the unintelligible words in our popular songs. Yeah. yeah. That was a question. Oh, it's a question. Um, it just didn't have a question mark. Well, I think if you go across the world, most cultures don't have it. 
a, dis, um, a distinctive category called music. What they call music incorporates poetry, song and dance. So our notion of music being purely instrumental is quite artificial. The music is, is multidimensional and it includes song lyrics. Um, it's, it's unusual to have music without song, without words. But even, even if you can't understand the words? No, no, no. Because um, the, the vocal instrument is a, is a musical instrument. It sounds nice. And, a, 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 exactly. And it communicates emotion and intention. You know, yes. Intent. Do you, do you like saxophone? It's not my favorite instrument. Okay. Um, I prefer piano and um, trumpet, horn. Okay, well, you know, saxophone is a kind of horn. It's a vocal instrument. It's like somebody... It's, it's, exactly. Yeah. But I, I, I think so is violin. Yeah. I hear a voice in violin. But the other thing I learned from your book is that everything about music is our own experience on the planet. Like, the rhythms of music, except maybe for some very eccentric uh, metal, are, are, are rhythms that we, that we can associate with, that we can walk to, run to, jump to. Yeah. 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 And that was like a, a real revelation for me. Um, I, want to, I want to ask you now a question, which is the main question that I ask my students in my popular music course. And my students are not studying music at Tel Aviv University. So it's a different kind of course. So my course is about life in a different way than, than probably your course is. Um, and the whole semester, we're dealing with one question. What makes an immortal popular song? What makes a popular song that people still love to sing after 60, 80, or 100 years? And I've been waiting now to ask you that question. I have an answer, but what, what do you think? Well, we run um, a, a master's program in Liverpool called the Music Industry, and the people who touch, who run it, their view is that what makes an immortal popular song is the music industry. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's constructed, packaged, and, and sold. Uh, there's a grain of truth to that. If we knew how to, what made an immortal song, we would we would. Uh, industrialize it, we would package it, we'd all become millionaires. No one knows. If they did know, there wouldn't be a problem. It's, it's, it's partly luck. There's a lot of hard work. It's a mixture of luck, hard work, and 1% inspiration. Oh, well, like inventions and, and yeah. anything else, really. Yeah. Um, but, okay, I, in my course, I spend a lot of time talking about the songs of Tin Pan Alley, the great American songbook. Yeah. where it's harder to invoke this huge, you know, um, MTV generation, uh, digital music and so on. Um, and of course, marketing was very important back then and who got to perform the song. But if there's a song from the 1940s that you like, I'm sure there are many, you, know, you have to ask yourself why these songs persisted for 80 years. In, in the book, uh, the analogy of, of the Beatles, and why not focus on them given I'm speaking from Liverpool? Uh, what, what's distinctive about popular song compared to writing it the way Mozart wrote a symphony? 
it's collective. So the core of the Beatles is a relationship between two people, between John and Paul. And then, of course, three people with Harrison. And if you want to include Ringo, he didn't like very much. But I think the dynamic uh, of four people uh, creating together is very distinctive of popular song. And it has to work. They have to like each other. They have to get on with each other. That's one thing. The other important thing is all the hard work and the practice that the Beatles gained in Hamburg. The journeyman years in Hamburg, where they were playing twice a day, every day of the week for years. That's professionalism, that's craft. And you can't get away without craft and professionalism. It's no different to being a great cook. Now, I'm a reasonable cook. I could never run a restaurant because I don't have the technique to be a professional. The same with telling jokes. You're probably a funny guy, but are you a professional comic? A professional comic is somebody who can get out there twice a day on the stage and always infallibly make people laugh because they have a technique. And that's no different from being a popular song artist. Okay, so Michael, I'm going to jump in. So uh, this is another thing from your book. Um, and by the way, I should say you have a, a, another book from last year. Yeah. Oxford University Press, which I also have to read uh, from, from chanting to, to pop music. Yeah, I don't. You're extremely prolific. Two two big books in two years. But get, getting back to the to the craft of the uh, of the Beatles, okay? Um, they still they still had over two hundred songs, and not all of them are equally good. And you're you're much younger than I am, but there were other bands at the time, like the Dave Clark Five and other other bands, Procol Harum, that had one and a half hits. Um, <laughs> the Beatles, the Beatles had the Beatles had something, and um, one of the things that I, I wanted to ask you is: is that something, their inability, I'm going to say, relative inability to read music? Well, they didn't read music. They didn't. They chose not to. I, I, I'm, I, I'm being nice, but but it, it you know, when I, when I go to the library, I, I find these tomes of of learned professors, some of them are your friends, who write these books on the Beatles, all of the uh, harmonies and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the changes and the, um, and the um, scales that they used. And I'm thinking to myself, you jerks, they wrote the book. That's unfair. Um, that's unfair. <laughs> um, look, everything that um, Beatles scholars discover in the songs is actually there in the songs. Yeah. Right, so when you and I speak English, um, we don't need to think about the linguistic structure of what's happening in our complicated speech. It's still there. When Chomsky comes along and discovers the generative processes, we don't have to consciously be aware of that. It's very complex, but we do it through habit and learning. It's not, it's not, um, Second nature. It's 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 not something we're born with. We have to gradually learn how to speak. But um, developmental psychology says that you can internalize and naturalize its processes. And music is the same. You, know, you don't have to be aware of how complex your song is for you to sing a complex song. It's up to the scholar to come along and to show you what's what's going on under the surface. And that can be interesting. You know, it can be to spend a, a day or so. Thinking about unpacking, it's like analyzing a song, um, 
can enrich your appreciation of the, of the brilliance of a song or, or the symphony. And it's no different to reading a book about, you know, a, a novel you admire. If you, are, if you really love a novel, and it can be helpful to read a literary critic who will unpack what's going on. Yeah, 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 but okay, exactly. So I write children's books, okay? If I, this is really a good conversation, and maybe I was a little bit too harsh on, um, on my colleagues because I have a uh, chip on my shoulder with the music department at Tel Aviv University that goes back 40 years. Um, but, but essentially, I'm, I'm going to take it back, you're right. But if I'm writing a children's story, and I'm saying, hmm, am I using the rule of threes here? Am I, um, am I showing not telling? Am I, my writing is going to be different. I just have to get into the zone and write a damn good story. And then go back over it and say, what have I done? Do I have enough show and tell? Show not tell? Do I have um, yeah. enough repetitions? Um, and, you know... I think the Beatles just had fun writing and they were these hugely gifted people. But Michael, I want to ask you the following question. Let's say that you and I, in order to have this talk, we would have to think in, in words, in written words while we were having it. And when you wrote that in your book, I said, yeah, what a big difference. What a gift people who are musical but don't learn notation have. Because we now listen to music with our left brains or, or metaphorically yeah they they don't Ella Fitzgerald and Billy Holiday and and the Beatles and probably Chet Baker and others even if they knew notation they weren't paying attention to it yeah yeah it's it's one path the novel and that's a novel of the Freudian slip and the book in the in the historical part and the, the central Part of the book um, is about the civilizations of music. So not just the West, but China, India, Africa, and Islam, uh, beginning with, uh, you know, uh, Mesopotamia and, and uh, the Middle East and the Bible, the biblical lands and Rome and Greece. Uh, it's a story of plurality, and each one is a pathway, a, a completely valid pathway. Path. And the path that the West took, which happened to be through music notation, is no better and no worse than the other paths. But every path you take has consequences. It's linear. So I say that you know, Islamic music is it, it, it's not um, about harmony or polyphony, it's about ornamentation. And as with the, the ornament, the decoration of Islamic visual culture, Similarly, in China, the story is about color, color, not so much about rhythm. Um, it's about timbre, and what's characteristic there is a the sound of gongs and bells. Whereas if you compare that with Greece, Greek music was obsessed with um, strings, the, the harp and the lyre. Uh, so Greek theory came from subdividing a string, whereas Chinese theory came from thinking about the partials of a gong. And, you know, the immensity of Chinese civilization goes its own way. Uh, uh, music is handed down, not through writing it down, but through the master-disciple relationship where the master hands down a, a, 
way of playing to the disciple, and that's learned through observation and imitating. And there's this tremendous chain, this oral traditional chain. And in the West, we prefer to disseminate music by writing it down onto paper. Yeah. But look, you know, I, I adore Mozart. I'm not going to compare Mozart with Chinese music or, or, or Carnatic music. These are different civilizations. They're different games. And people like cricket or soccer or rugby or ping pong or snooker, and each game has its own rules, its own fan base, its own ethos. And the human is very good at flexibly switching between different language games, as Wittgenstein calls it. Have a capacity to always be change, changing games, and we're very, very comfortable in uh, moving between languages, um, fashions, games, genres. Um, and this flexibility is one of the things which also defines um, our species. We're far more plastic or flexible than any other species on the planet. And that also goes for uh, our capacity to enjoy Beethoven as much as we enjoy Ella Fitzgerald. Absolutely. But it, it is a, um, there is a, a, a huge cultural element and this, this is uh, so strong in your book also. So you grew up listening to Beethoven and, uh, and I grew up listening to to chazanut, to cantorial music. And, um, you know, uh, tomorrow evening is Yom Kippur. So uh, Ashkenazi Jews have this, um, this song, no words, you know. I get goosebumps every time I think about it. It's, it, it's like what you say, it's this like, universal joining in of, of millions of voices in your mind while you sing this and and so many memories i think you've got to be quite cautious Mel, because this is your music and, yeah. we, all, and we all have we all have our own music of course it's just for me yeah. yes and every culture on the planet has its own music of course so it's a one, one i mean to be slightly sober one limit to saying music is universal actually it's not because every culture has its own scales and rhythmic patterns and instruments. And you have to get used to that. Underneath that surface, you have the emotions, which of course are, emotions are universal. But you know, while I was reading your book, because I was reading it online, I could go to a lot of the, the Chinese music and the, and the uh, I don't remember, Tibetan and all kinds of um, things that I had heard but never listened to. Yes, yes. So then I went online and I listened to it and I did have a kinship with the music. Yeah. You know, I didn't get goosebumps like a, like you know a young kid sitting in synagogue. Yeah. But I did have a kinship with the music. Yeah, I, you can. It's it's a it's a it's a starting point or a doorway, but I would imagine that people who spend their whole lifetimes with that music probably get a lot more than we do the first impression and that's the journey to, to be exposed to um, unfamiliar music is the first step in a journey it's like meeting a person you might like them you may be attractive but you begin a relationship with them you may end up marrying them but it's a journey and you take the rough with the smooth I like like the people so so um, yes so one of the one of my visions reading your book uh, and I had plenty, 
was um, some some primitive man. I don't know how many years ago, um, imitating a bird. In other words, you talked about the anatomy of vocal cords, and and and, and that's also part of it. You know, our, our unique ability to have flexible vocal cords. But I think that there was a primitive man somewhere, and this might have happened many times in many places, who, who, mimicked, who mimicked the birds. Maybe we learn to sing by imitating not only the pounding of our hearts and the stomping of our feet when we sure, walk. Sure, sure. And, and this happens all across the world in hunter-gatherer societies today, where through shamanistic um, cultures, um, humans are intermingled, intertwined with animals in every level of their life. And Darwin wrote about this as a faculty called mimesis or mimesis. We are very good at imitating. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, and also today in cultures such as the, um, you know, the Inuit in North America or the Kaduli in Papua New Guinea or the um, large parts of Australia, it's, it's common uh, for people to uh, imitate birds, but also other animals, bats and reindeer and seals and whales. Yeah, um, ah, maybe and to hunt them also. You hunt them, you consume their flesh, you identify with them. Um, it's a way of explaining the cosmos from a certain perspective, that you are part of nature. Nature in the, in the great circle of life. So yes, of course, at some point people did imitate birds, but also they imitated seals and reindeer. And yeah, birds. but 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 then so the, yeah. the, the the consequence of this is that we learn to speak by imitating the song of other animals. The song. Yes, um, it was certainly there, but I think it was um, the, the 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 basis of learning to speak was slow and gradual process so we we know that because we can recover the fox p2 gene which is associated with speech acquisition and we know that there is a degenerate version of the gene in um, neanderthals and a much more mature version in say previous 200,000 years ago so we could uh, and and uh, and uh, neurolinguists have a story about how the capacity to uh, create symbolic language, uh, crystallizes about a hundred thousand years ago. At about, about the same time, we learn how to imitate, how, uh, how to how to create realistic painting and figurines. Mm -hmm. So the cognitive maturity of sapiens about fifty thousand years ago is an ability to create symbolic language, but also to represent reality real realistically. Yeah, but but you see, Michael, what I'm learning from you is that maybe Yuval Noah Harari didn't really get it right. Because his theory is that people learned to tell stories 50,000 years ago. And when I read your book, I had a different notion Ooh. that people actually learned to sing stories. He, he, his uh, contention is that when you can tell a story, you know, uh, my God, my history, my legend and, and gather more than 150 people. No, I think is now is now what churches do. The, the, the proof of that, if you look, it's a silent movie from the 20s, and there's no speech at all. There's just music and there's gesture. And actually, people don't need language very much 
you look at people who know each other very well, old married couples are really good friends. They smile, they nod, they touch each other, they, they be with each other. Um, language is overrated. It's emotion and gesture or um, intonation or vocalization is an extraordinarily rich and efficient medium for communicating emotion and, and intention and ideas. You don't need to conceptualize it. And it comes from heightened, heightened intonation. That's, that's the origin of language. Darwin knew that, actually. Darwin always postulates that language originates in animal cause. Where Darwin was wrong, he thinks it's all about sex. It's not just about sex. He thinks it comes from um, the passions of mating, mating cause. Um, and the story he tells is about sexual selection through the most beautiful song in the forest, the most beautiful tale on the peacock, um, the origin of that. Yeah, but if you, if, if you take that and you combine it with the other stuff you've written and Harari, then it, it, his contention that is supported by anthropologists is, you know, you need a global village in order to have this new man. Um, and you have to extend beyond the 100 or 150 people in my particular, yes. my particular uh, family. But it doesn't have to be by telling a story. It could be by singing a really good story. And, and that brings me back to your chapter about the whales, which is incredible. So if there were these people who could sing a story the same way you have other cultures singing stories, I remember this from your book, yeah. Then you don't have to actually speak. You know, if if I have a good song, yeah, yeah, uh, then I can have more than 150 people singing my song. It's, it's, look, um, this is very, very late in the day. Singing stories around the campfire, tell the story of where your ancestors came from, comes very, very late in the story of evolution. Um, three or four million years before that, we we are using song for much more basic things like coordinating hunters to hunt an, an animal or to soothe a baby um, or to reassure people or to share um, to share what's an extraordinary is, is the ability of music to create tel telepathy telepathy to, sh to share a theory of mind as linguists call it so if we are moving in the same rhythm and sharing a kind of intonation, we're sharing an emotion and we're sharing a state of mind. That's incredibly important for creating society and for binding people together. That's a long way upstream from telling stories around a campfire, much more fundamental than that. Same, same thing with the rhythm, isn't it? Rhythm, rhythm yeah. Rhythm comes first. Yeah. This is, this is uh, incredible. Um, what, uh, before I ask you my last question for today, uh, what, is the, what, what perplexes you most in your trying to understand the musical human? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I, probably, to go, to go, 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 going back when you're, you're telling me how much um, uh, singing means to you, that the... the, the cantoric song means to you it's, it's quite hard for people to share enthusiasms with each other so there, there are pieces I know which I would die for and friends of mine think meh 
<laughs> I'm being, for goodness sake, listening. Are you not hearing what I'm hearing in this piece? There's no way of legislating about what is great music. It's, it's so personal. And that's perhaps the, the saving grace. And that perplexes you. It does. Hey, do you have a, a, a song? Okay, I have this experience. Um, when I was about seven years old, a new song called Volare, that Dean Martin sang the... Uh, yeah. Volare, oh... Sure. Every time, Michael, every, it's not the best song I know by far, but every time I hear that song, I have some distant, you know, I have this great smile on my face. I'm transported to something. Yeah. And I can't, I can't even remember the event. Do you have any songs like that from your childhood? Sure. <laughs> You'll laugh. It's Tom Jones. It's Delilah. <laughs> and you know what? This goes back to my memory growing up as a child in Israel. It must have been 1971, and I was four or five. And I think the Lila was in the air, and Tom Jones was popular in Tel Aviv. I don't know why. But, you know, uh, that song, like all songs, they're like a sponge. They have a, an ability to soak up your life, soak up your memories. Like no other thing we do, much more so than language does. Music is like a mental sponge. Uh, and that's why we love it so much and why it's so personal. We have different sponges. And, and, and we should, you know, we like different <laughs> stories, we like different colors. Um, but I, I, I feel that I found a highly educated kindred spirit because um, I cannot live without music. Uh, when I was, when I, in, during my scientific years, mm. my students could not play radio in my laboratory. Yeah. Because I couldn't, if, if there was music, I couldn't, I couldn't concentrate. Yeah. I'm the same. I'm um, the yeah, they had to wear earphones and even that drove me crazy. I, I work in silence. I, I write in silence. Yeah. I, I can write with, I, I sometimes go to a coffee house. That's another thing. And um, at some stage when the music, I'm not listening to it, I can get into the zone. You know, there's applications that play you coffee house music with noise. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, right. I think I want one. It's an, it's another perplexing thing. Um, so that no, the Tom Jones story coming <laughs> coming from the world expert on Beethoven, that's that's a humdinger. Um, and I, all of my interviewees, I ask about the Beatles. Uh, so I'm going to ask you also, um, what is your favorite Beatles song? Oh, easy. It's um, Here Comes the Sun. Okay, is there, is, there, is, there, is, there, is there a reason? It's beautiful. <laughs> you know, I, I can, if I, if I wanted to, I can analyze it uh, to death. I could tell you exactly what's going on. It wouldn't, it wouldn't touch anything about that song. It makes no sense at all. <laughs> can, can, you, can you sing a few bars? I'm a terrible singer. You know, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. Everybody on my program sings. There's no such thing. By the way, this is, yeah. we have to have another, one sec, we have to, before you sing, we have to have another program on this. There's no such thing as a terrible singer because everybody can speak. And if speaking is a language, then singing is a language. So go ahead, go for it. No jazz police. Here comes the sun, da 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 da. That's all you're getting out of me. <laughs> Come on, little darling. That's all I'm doing today. 
Michael, come on. Three bars. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got I got a have you seen I got a little article on the conversation called the Tone Deaf Professor. Have you seen it? It's, it's notorious where I talk about how I couldn't sing a note as a child. Um, my, my teacher said, he was also Hungarian, that I have a, a voice like a cracked saucepan. But why do you listen to those people? I, now I have to come to Liverpool because you can sing and you sing very nicely. Thank you. And when I was 23, a master's student in my laboratory told me that I sang off key, which I do sometimes, most people do. I didn't sing for 20 years. But when I got over it, I produced two albums, I performed. And that's very interesting. I bet you that you sing very beautifully. <laughs> My wife stops me. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was, when I was a school kid in, in uh, England, I was 11 or 12, and the teacher gagged me. I, I was not allowed to open my mouth during choir practice. And she gave other children an, a reward if they ever ratted me out. She so said, Miss uh, Spitzer sang. They got a reward and I received a punishment. Well, we have, we have to, when I come to visit you in Liverpool, we have to do a special session on that. <laughs> uh, Michael, this has been incredible. Um, way more than I dreamed of and I, and I dreamed. Finally, I, I have met somebody who says what I've been thinking all these years, that we are basically musical beings. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful year. Shana Tova. You too. And Happy I hope we, stay in, hope we stay in touch after this. <laughs> Take care, Mel. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.